From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. All my life, I've always leaned into my identity, and it's okay. I mean, people usually say, I don't want to be an Asian-American writer. I want to be a writer. And I kind of think, well, I'm not leaving my identity or my experience at the door to somehow sound better for people who are the ones who, I guess, check your credits. That's the author, Min Jin Lee. She's written Free Food for Millionaires and Pachinko, which was a 2017 National Book Award finalist. She's also a friend of mine and a deeply thoughtful person. I spoke with Min Jin back in May, and we ended up talking about Asian American identity and the immigrant experience. She also told me why she is, quote, not impressed by people who do whatever it takes, end quote. It's a conversation that I've thought about a lot in the months since. And as we head into the holidays, I wanted to share it again with all of you. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. Min Jin Lee, welcome to the show. Pleased to have you. Hi, Preet. How's it going, man? It's, it's going all right, man. <laughs> so I want to point out some parallels between you and me, okay? So we graduated from college, uh, from high school the same year, from college the same year, I believe law school the same year. Then you practice for a bit. I practice for longer. You're an author. I'm an author. But that's kind of like saying, you know, LeBron James and I both play basketball. That's hilarious. It's not quite the same thing. Well, Preet, you and I... Well, first of all, I'm happy to be on a podcast with LeBron James. <laughs> and secondly, I think what's interesting to me is I looked you up in depth. Obviously, I know who you are and I know your to work. To prepare for the interview? Yeah, of course. Of course. I'm so interested in due diligence and homework and oh, research. No. What did, what did, what did, you know, so the Wikipedia page, I think, has some errors. So what did you learn that's relevant? Well, you and I were born the same year. We were, four weeks apart. And not only were we born the same year, I think that we have really similar interests. And as a matter of fact, you and I have never, have we been ever in a photograph together? I think we were. Oh, okay. Um, then, we went to that event a few months ago. Oh, for Wajahat. Yes. I think, right. I think there okay. were pictures. I think there's evidence. You know, when people say pictures or it didn't happen, I think it happened. Which means that people know that we're not actually the same person. We're not the same person. But I would rather be you. My parents. No, you would be wouldn't. So much, no, 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 <laughs> you parents, would. no, no. My parents would be so much happier. Right. If I and I would rather be Dr. Sanjay Gupta. My parents <laughs> would be happier. He's like good looking, smart, on TV, and also a surgeon. That guy pisses me off. Well, the surgeon part is something that is pretty undeniably excellent. Yes. Well, we're going to talk about Asian competitiveness in a moment, but because <laughs> I know you like to talk about that. And yes. you know, this is this is a particular month, so we should talk about all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But I wonder, when you were in law school, you already had this uh, ability to write well. You got prizes when you were 
an undergraduate in writing, nonfiction and fiction writing. Mm -hmm. Did your legal writing suffer because you wrote too well? Does that question make sense? It's actually really a good question because I will confess here, as I've confessed elsewhere more privately, that I have failed the New York State Bar. That's okay. And when I failed the New York State Bar the first time, I've only failed once, but I took the exam twice. When I failed the first time, I was really depressed and I talked to my friend and he said, the best thing you can do is to sign up for the, to take the bar again and go up to Albany and see your failed examination paper. Oh. So I said, okay. And I went to Albany and they give you a copy of your exam, the what you wrote. And so I sat there in this room and they give you a limited amount of time and I read my answers and they were so well written, but they had no law. <laughs> <laughs> You just, you just, you just told stories. Well, I think I just sort of cared about all this other stuff, but it wasn't about the law. And I think this is my silly way to answer your question. My writing obviously didn't suffer. It's just that it wasn't substantively focused on the issues. And I think that even though now I realize just what an incredible gift it was to go to law school because I was able to figure out, oh yeah, you know, that's chaff and that's wheat. But I think when I took the bar exam, I was so much more focused on the fact that my wedding was the same month as, the, you know, when I started my new job. I wasn't the best law student, Preet. That's my answer. Well, that's, that's okay. Okay. It, it turns out that that thing wasn't free. But let's go back further in time in your life. Mm. <laughs> like me, here's another parallel. You and I are both immigrants. Neither one of us was born in the United States of America. I came at about one uh, or two. You came at seven. So I don't have a memory of coming. I'm guessing that you do. What's your what's your memory of arriving in the United States? Well, when I was on the plane, I was really excited because I thought for some reason that America would look like a 17th century fairy tale. So imagine Cinderella and all the illustrations for Cinderella. I thought when I got to JFK, <laughs> there'd be stagecoaches and women in ball gowns with really high hair and men in waistcoats. Why did I, you think this? Because I'm stupid. <laughs> <laughs> come on, come no, no. on. I don't mean like stupid as in like I have a low IQ or I'm, I have challenges with learning issues, which I sort of do. But when I got here, my imagination was that I thought Western people or white people would be kind of like Western fairy tales because that's what I was so steeped in as a kid. I was very odd as a child. And then I got here and JFK looked just like Seoul, but with non-Korean people. And that was very disappointing. You know, it's funny. So recently, two different people have talked about their arrival in the States. Mm -hmm. I had occasion to talk to uh, Padma Lakshmi recently about her TV program, Taste the Nation. She's really good looking. You know, we're going to have to edit this, this <laughs> a decent amount. Minjin. Sorry. Gosh. Um, stick to the issue. This is maybe why the bar exam was problematic for exactly. you. Exactly. Sticking to the issue. <laughs> I told you. I'm not having any. She's a very brilliant woman uh, and, and, and an excellent writer and chronicler of food. And she said that I asked her the question, you know, would you do a show about the holiday Halloween? And if so, would you focus on the merits or the lack of merit of the candy corn? And she said, you know, the interesting thing is Halloween is her favorite holiday because she came to America on Halloween. Oh. And she saw people trick-or-treating and was like, wow, what a great country. You know, I like that. I can't say Halloween is my favorite ho holiday. 
However, I did like getting all the candy. I thought that was really interesting. And you and I grew up in a time when you're able to go trick-or-treating without fear of razor blades. So No, the biggest fear you had was you were going to get the neighbor who gives you an apple. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Instead of candy. So real. So real. It's like, no, you can keep your box of raisins. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, the box of raisins. Yeah. No. We didn't wait. <laughs> I mean, my problem in Halloween was because I had parents who were worried about my catching cold. Uh-huh. So one year... I dressed as a cowboy and I had, you know, it wasn't a great cowboy outfit, but I had like the vest and I had the holster and I had the gun and the, and the hat and it was a little chilly. And my mom insisted that I wear a ski jacket on top. I love your mom. So I would, I would ring doorbells and nobody knew what I was. It just looked like a guy who was maybe going skiing with a cowboy hat on. <laughs> <laughs> I um, love your mom. Well, that leads me, mom. you know what? So, so this is, seems like idle chit chat. No. But something that you and I obviously both experienced in different ways because we're from different places. But, and, and we grew up, you know, I grew up in, in Jersey. You grew up in, in Queens for, for much of your early life. These, these little differences between sort of the white kids who were around and in school who had been here for generations and then you being the new, the new kid. And obviously where you lived, it was, it was quite diverse. And there were a lot of immigrants where I lived. There were some immigrants. But were there moments that you remember thinking, you know, why don't we do this the way the Joey across the street does it. Are there moments like that? I think my entire life was like that. And it wasn't just about Joey. I kept on thinking, the way I'm growing up feels off. Like it feels off. And it doesn't, and, it, and it's funny. I don't, the reason why I think what you just said about the idle chit chat is so important is that so often people like you and I are not in conversation in a mainstream way. So people are always so surprised when people like you and I talk about our childhoods because people know almost nothing about people like us in our childhoods. So people have often said to me at my book readings, we didn't know that you wrote your book in English. Like that's how far off the reality is for the mainstream audience. So I often live in this New York bubble and every time I leave my New York bubble and I meet people who are not like us, they say the darndest things. <laughs> so when I think about Joey and all these other people, I think I kept on wishing that my parents could be my advocates. I don't know if you had that feeling and that they were switched on or they had other parents with whom they can exchange notes. So when I became a parent, I was so much more involved with things like the parent association or if they, the school would ask me to do something at the school. I did everything that they asked because I wanted to be the parent who knew what was going on because my parents couldn't know what was going on. That's interesting. I mean, in, in a sort of parallel vein, I remember these moments thinking, you know, I, I want to fit in with everyone else. And we'll talk about assimilation. You have lots of thoughts that you've expressed about assimilation and what that means and, and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing and to what extent one assimilates. But I remember one day getting on the school bus when I was a kid. And my parents listen to this podcast every week, so I, I wonder what they're going to think of all of this because it's not the case that we talk about this so much. And it was the Monday after Thanksgiving. And I was pretty young. Maybe I was seven. I don't know. And the bus driver asked, did you have um, a nice Thanksgiving? I said, yes. And then she asked, you know, did you have turkey? Mm -hmm. And I said, no. She said, well, what'd you have then? And I said, oh, we had chicken. And she said, Oh, well, that's, that's good enough. Chicken's very close to turkey. What I didn't say was, we had chicken curry that, <laughs> that Thanksgiving. 
And I remember, and this is a terrible thing to feel, and and I feel, I don't know, maybe you can help me with some therapy on this. I feel awful that I had that bad feeling about that now, as an older person, as someone who's come to understand my heritage and my culture much better and the mix of it. But I, I, I felt, I turned red and I'm thinking, why, why on earth did we have chicken curry when everyone has turkey? That's what you do in America. You have turkey. And, and every year since then, at the insistence of me, maybe also my brother, we had turkey. Do you have a reaction to that? I do. And I like this memory very much because obviously you and I would agree that your parents were right to serve curry because it's more delicious. <laughs> this Just is like, the secret. Curry, right. chicken curry properly made. My mom, who's listening, is a, a magnificent cook. Uh-huh. And yet we eat the turkey now. Well, and I'm going to tell you something even crazier. When I was eight or nine, I think I was not even very close, far from when I first got here. I felt so compelled to know the traditions better that I got a cookbook from the library. I think it was Better Homes and Gardens. I can see the cover right now. It's red and white. It's like a checkerboard tablecloth cover. And I made a turkey. You made a turkey? Yeah. I just asked my mother to buy a turkey and I made a turkey because like, I thought it was so important because my mother was working all the time, six days a week. It was just nonstop. And I thought, we need to have this turkey. And my older sister helped with everything. And my younger sister, you know, she was just adorable. And we made a turkey. And so since then, I have always made the turkey until I think I was almost like 50 when the torch was sort of passed to somebody else. That's interesting. No, it's crazy. Were, when were I think you, about were you it. Bullied? Were you bullied uh, as a kid? I was bullied endlessly. Yeah, so was I. I. You know, I haven't talked about it much. The first time I talked about it, and wrote about it, I got, I got a very sweet note from my mother who felt awful that mm -hmm. I had never told them that. I never told my parents. It was just not in my nature. It was not in my nature to do that. I never told my parents. Yeah. And, and why didn't you? I felt sorry for them. What does that, what does that mean? I, they were just working all the time. I mean, I just felt You didn't like, want to burden them? I didn't want to burden them. And also, I didn't think it was their job to take care of me in that way. And, and I think this is kind of connected to my previous answer about my son is that I feel so strongly that I have to advocate not just for myself and my kid and also for my husband and my classes and my students and the planet. I, there's a part of me that just feels like, you know what, if I can do a tiny little thing to somehow help other people in my community who feel as immigrants that they can't speak do that thing. I'm going to try. And it gets me in trouble, not like in a bad way, but kind of I'm overcommitted and yeah. I need to sit down. I don't know how to explain it in any other way, but I feel like I overdo it because of my prior, of my childhood. I mean, this is what you're talking about is that you didn't tell your parents why. I mean, wouldn't Well, me you in part, my, my parents worked hard too, but for me, it was a little bit, I was embarrassed that, that I was the victim of this and it was humiliating, and I didn't want anybody to know. I just wanted it to stop. I also think we have a gender problem, right? Because I think boys are supposed to take care of themselves and fight back in a different way. I think girls aren't expected to at that age. And I told my older sister, and sometimes my sister had to get involved because I did not have either the language, not because I couldn't speak English, because I couldn't speak English, but that wasn't it because my older sister couldn't speak English either. I just didn't have the sort of self-confidence to fight back. And if the kid was bigger than me, then my sister would actually step in. And my older sister now, she works as a very fierce advocate for poor people. 
Her entire life has been dedicated to public service. She's the president and CEO of Volunteers of America. So it's almost as if you have this experience of being persecuted unfairly as a young person. And then sometimes when you grow up, you become an advocate. So I'm confused about one very basic term (laughs) that we use all the time and we've used it today and they use it to describe the month that we're in. Uh huh. What does it mean to be Asian? What what is it? I mean, Asia is a continent. Yes. That subsumes dozens of cultures, scores of languages, you know, many, many, many cuisines, different histories, some overlapping histories, some histories of war between and among the nations in Asia. So what does it mean? Well, it's, you're correct, Pre. It's a misnomer and it's an imperfect term. It's a large tent that barely shields all the concerns that we have in our community. It makes a lot of people feel an allergic reaction to it, especially members of our own community. I think non-Asians aren't going, this is stupid. I think usually it's Asians and Asian Americans who are going, like, I don't like it. Because if you think about it, like, for example, in your biography, I believe that you are half Sikh, half Hindu in terms mm-hmm. of your parentage, yes. right? You did good research. Thank Next you. time you interview me. I'm going to interview in a second. So if you think about it, there's a lot of history there between Sikhs and Hindus. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, you know, you talk about and have written about brilliantly the tensions between Koreans and Japanese. And there's a lot of that. Right. So here you have, let's say, the continent of India, over a billion people. And you're going to tell me just within the continent of India (laughs) (laughs) that we all get along, that we all have the same interests. So it's preposterous. So I think I understand your question. And also I think everybody else does. And yet it's a political identity to be Asian American. And now if you think about it, the proper term for this month is Asian American Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Heritage Month. That's a lot of letters. It's a lot of letters. And... Very often, folks who are Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders are like, um, we don't even understand how this happened, but we definitely want to be included in this party. Right. And I'm like, yeah, come on in. It's like us. NATO. Yeah. It's like it's, yes. there's, just, there's just strength. Yes. You know, and every yes. once in a while, you know, a country, you know, Bangladesh at one point maybe applied to be in Api. You know, I'm mm-hmm. kidding, obviously. I mean, the way I began to think about it, you said it's a political identity. And I think that's right. Because mm-hmm. from the perspective of the people who live in the country that we came to, mm-hmm. particularly people who are racist. Yeah. And I got involved in, in anti-Asian violence. We'll talk about the current surge in that. But anti-South uh, Asian violence in North Jersey back in the early 90s and became a little bit active in that, in that fight. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, within our community, the South Asian community, we think there are huge differences and tensions between, you know, um, Muslim Pakistanis and Hindu or Sikh Indians. But if you're a white supremacist walking down the street in Hoboken, they're not distinguishing between the Pakistani and the Indian and the Bengali. And the people who are engaging in violence now, I don't think are making distinctions between a Korean American and a Japanese American. They see some kind of other and their hatred does not admit of those distinctions. So in that way, Asian Americans sort of make sense. Does that make any sense to you? That's exactly the reason why we have the term. And if you think about Vincent Chin, he was murdered by white supremacists who were really upset that there was a rise in Japanese automakers. They weren't really asking for their identity card and then looking it up and saying, oh, by the way, oh, you're not even Japanese. So, yeah, look, that just... happened after 9 11. 
that happened at, and after 9-11, if you think about the attacks on Sikhs, yeah, a deeply peace-loving people who have fought very hard against poverty. And they're thinking, oh, you're Muslim. And I'm going, no, you're just a dumbass. So it's... In that sense, I think, yeah, why don't we band together and figure this out because they're not making distinctions. So is is that the only way that that term makes sense? I think so. Yeah. And because when I was living in Asia and I would say something like, I'm Asian American, they would look at me like, what are you talking about? (laughs) What what does that mean? What does that mean? Is there such a thing as European? Does European make sense? No. And I mean, I have to say that when I was growing up in Queens, it was so distinct, so distinct that there's no such thing as a whiteness. Because I didn't ever say somebody was white ever, or even black, because my friends were Jamaican, or they were Polish, or they're Italian, and they were incredibly proud. Yeah, they're really ethnically specific and country specific. And they would even tell you, I'm Catholic, don't you get it? And you're going, oh yeah, that person is Irish and Catholic and that person's Irish and Protestant and they are different. Do you think there's enough solidarity between and among the communities that we subsume under the the rubric of Asian American? I think the solidarity will only come to fruition under two different sets of scenarios. One scenario is there's a common enemy. The other scenario is that it's a cool party and people just want to join So I noticed that among the people in our communities who want to develop a stronger political identity, they kind of say, we're going to celebrate all the cool things about being with us. And the other part says, we're going to focus very hard on the people who hate us. And I kind of think at this point, because I've studied history of movements, I'm happy to do both. (laughs) Yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Min Jin Lee. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause. You have said, you said, I'm extra Asian. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You said you were being glib when you said that. Um, no. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, I think the the conversation that I was having, it was about being very Asian or being Asian enough. Oh, I know that it was for the Los Angeles Times and these two journalists to have a podcast called Asian Enough. And they ask Asian Americans around the country and I think around the world about what it means to be Asian. 
And I said that all my life, I've always leaned into my identity and it's okay. I mean, people usually say, I don't want to be an Asian American writer. I want to be a writer. And I kind of think, well, I'm not leaving my identity or my experience at the door to somehow sound better for people who are the ones who, I guess, check your credits. And if you think that somehow it's worse to be an immigrant writer or to be a feminist writer or any of those things that have labels, then that's really on you. It's not on me. I'm not going to hope that I'm going to get extra credit for being a writer rather than just whatever it is that you want to call me. I mean, you can't really control these boxes people put you in anyway, but I can't ever extricate certain aspects of my identity. And I don't really see the point of it. Like, what are the goodies that I get if I do that? If I said to you, I'm not a woman writer, that being a woman is something that I can just sort of leave at the door. Do I get a prize for that? Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, people are a lot of things. Yeah. And people choose which parts of their identity to care about and think about and explore. And for some people, that's their religion. Mm -hmm. And for some people, it's their ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And for some people, it's their gender. For some people, it's a combination of all of those things. And, you know, my view is you should just you should do what you want. I guess you could do what you want, but I kind of also think that Kimberly Crenshaw's term intersectionality yep. has become one of the most important terms of Generation mm -hmm. Z and the millennials, oddly enough. It's a very old term because people are saying they're all interlinked in the same way I can argue as a person who studies economics that our economies are coupled, right? So when I say I don't want to make an air conditioner in, let's say, Indiana as a corporation, that affects not just Indiana and the people who work there. It affects America and also affects other countries that the air conditioners are made. We're arguing for a more complex understanding of the world. And I think that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Right. Stereotyping is also bad. Right. It's very, very bad. It's very, very bad. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. Yes. So stop it. Stop it. At this point, it should seem not necessary to explain why the myth or stereotype of the model minority of the Asian American is bad. But some people still need to understand that. You want to take a shot? Sure. Here. Just... The biggest problem that I think, no, it's not the biggest problem. One of the problems that I think I see right now in our community of fighting the, fighting the model minority myth is that we ourselves are doing it. So very often we'll say, we're the good Americans, they're the bad Americans. And I've seen people of our own community do this. So if you look at the Harvard case right now, that's going to go up in the Supreme Court. The affirmative action case. The affirmative action case. Yep. This is a really good example of where you have Asian Americans who have benefited from affirmative action saying Harvard is wrong and therefore it needs to go away. And then Harvard actually saying, oh no, and this is your alma mater. And it's also a place that I have benefited from because I was a fellow at the Radcliffe Institute. Harvard saying, no, we've never done anything wrong in the way we choose our candidates. And I say they're both wrong. They're both wrong, and I know why they each have to say they're both right, <laughs> but they a lot of this case really hinges on model minorities. And unfortunately, until we ourselves start naming the complexities and the nuances of cases like that, and also of our own identities that we're not perfect, that we have problems, and that there is an enormous tent with so many diverse and diverging interests within our own tent, 
then we're not going to get what we want. But if you keep saying, and Andrew Yang said this during the elections when he was the first Asian American candidate to run for president, he even wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. And I don't dislike Andrew Yang. There are certain things I agree with him about, like UBI. I love that idea. Universal basic income. Thank you. Universal basic income. He said, you know, we should just cover ourselves with the American flag and try to tell everybody that we're really, really American. So if Preet and I are hyper patriots, then we would actually protect ourselves. And again, this becomes a model minority idea. We're hyper patriots. We're hyper good. We're hyper excellent. And and look at our resumes. I mean, you and I've done a lot of things that people would say they're model minorities. We're really good Americans to have. And I kind of think, no, that's a really dangerous kind of idea. Right. Because if you don't live up to the model minority status, whatever that is, Mm -hmm. then you're looked upon even worse than you would otherwise be in part. It's dehumanizing because why can't I have a bad day? Why can't I fail the New York State Bar? You can fail the New York State Bar. I already did, yeah. <laughs> and you were allowed not to become a doctor. Yes. And, and it all worked. That, that joke, you know, every time I'm in front of a, an Indian American or South Asian audience, I make the joke about disappointing my family by not becoming a doctor. Mm-hmm. It never doesn't get a big laugh. Isn't that Right, funny? but that joke also hinges on model minorities. Yeah, but it's a little bit making fun of it, I think. I, I think so. Well, I think you and I are trying to comment and critique it. I'm not quite sure yeah. if the audience gets it. And this is the Dave Chappelle problem, right? It's that critiques are often seen as, it depends on who the listener is, because you and I are intending a critique, but sometimes the audience only just reaffirms a stereotype. But I think the Asian American community, at least compared to when I was growing up, is incredibly more diverse in many, many different ways. Would you agree with that? I think it is more diverse because I think we're becoming more visible. One of the things that I've noticed about folks in our community is that there's a real tendency to be afraid of being shamed, of being self-promoting. So, and self-promoting itself is a term that has a great deal of judgment behind it, right? But we're living in a world in which platforms, and I'm going to say something, I'm going to use a big word here, But neoliberalism requires, no, neoliberalism has made a disintermediated media economy in which you have individuals who have to get more attention. And getting more attention requires becoming more visible. So what has happened is that you have all these individuals of Asian descent saying, you know what, I'm going to have to become more visible. And that as a consequence, we know more about them. Have they always been around? Yeah, I think there have always been many people who are Asian who are doing interesting, different things. And even the fact that we're talking about some of the pathways that we're supposed to have as good model minority children, that's a good thing. And that's going to break the stereotype. I guess what troubles me as a college professor and also as a parent is I see how the model minority myth is not just creating envy for us, but it's really becoming used as a bludgeon against children. Our children are suffering from so many mental health issues because they feel like they're not measuring up. And that to me is really distressing. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Min Jin Lee after this. You've spoken about the difference between the hopes and dreams and aspirations and focus of a first-generation immigrant versus a second-generation immigrant. And 
that resonated with me and I, and I see that. Can you explain what you meant by that? Yeah. One of the things that I really see as a college professor is I'm dealing with second generation kids a lot and third generation kids, and yet they still have this specter of judgment from the first generation parent. And the first generation, especially if they're middle class and working class, they come from countries and there are so many different countries they can come from who are Asian, where it's really about survival. How do I survive my life? I, and I explained it in terms of the pyramid of Maslow's needs, M-A-S-L-O-W. In the very bottom, you need to have food, shelter, safety. And in the very, very top, you have this whole idea of meaning and creativity. So second generation, they might have more existential wishes that they're not being gratified and they're very unhappy or they're discontented. And the first generation says, what's the matter with you? You right. have everything. We you have need. a home. We have running water. We have running water. Or even you have a nice car and you have a nice wife. Like, why are you complaining? And the second and third generation says, no, but I want more. And wanting more and not being understood for wanting more is very painful for people. And I'm always saying, before you judge somebody who seemingly has everything and wants more, I ask you to pull back and say, why is that person entitled to more? Why doesn't that person have the right to dream bigger? Because that's how the great things in this world happen is that somebody had to dream right. that big. But you can't, but it's, you understand where the first generation is coming of from. So it, it depends on where, so for example, you know, you and I both came to America via airplane mm -hmm. and presumably someone had the money to buy the airplane ticket. But if you came to the United States of America in the 1970s as a refugee from Vietnam mm -hmm. and spent some time in a camp before you came here, and then, and this is the case of, of my best friend from college, and then, you know, your recollection is that you were picking, you were picking fruit, picking berries in a field in Oregon, and then your family, by hard work, built themselves up uh, into people who got jobs and then opened up a business. They opened up a restaurant. And the idea that the next generation wouldn't be happy with sort of middle-class status and jobs and an Ivy League education and all of that, it must be jarring to the first generation. It's, it's understandable, right? Well, it must be really jarring and it must be disappointing and upsetting and terrifying. And one of the things that I often caution parents is, I know you're afraid. You're afraid for the safety and well-being of your child. And out of your fear you're saying things that you don't really mean. And if you thought them through, then you might not say them in such a mean and judgmental way. But I understand that you're afraid because you love your child. And I always tell my students who are really upset about the fact that they don't want to be doctors but their parents want them to be doctors, your parents really love you and they want to protect you. And being a filmmaker is really difficult. Being a podcaster is being really difficult. Being a writer is really difficult. I understand that. And often I caution them and say, I don't say, oh, go go run for your dreams. Just like, just do it. I say things like, sit up straight, stop saying the word like, make eye contact. <laughs> <laughs> like I try to equip them with some of the social skills because go back. let's go back to personality, right? And character is yeah. that you actually have to be able to do those things too. And I also tell them, do you know how you're going to get health insurance? Because you're going to need that. So, but I tried to tell them, your parents are saying this out of love and, it, and they're misguided and also they're gripped by emotions. So sometimes it's really difficult to say things when you love and you're scared. And, and they usually look at me like, oh, I know my parents love me. And I said, I know. And also 
you also have to grow up and at some point individuate and you're going to have to tell them the truth about who you are. You know, whether my students are afraid to tell their parents that they're gay or trans or that they want to be filmmakers, all those things terrify parents, maybe not equally. I want to go back to affirmative action for a moment. Sure. I learned that you actually attended some or many days of the trial. I did. Why is that? I'm working on a novel right now called American Hagwon, H-A-G-W-O-N, which is the Korean word for private tutoring academy. And the central subject of my novel is education. And one of the most important issues for the Asian American community, as well as for Korean Americans and Koreans in particular around the world, is education. So I went to the Harvard trial. I was at the Radcliffe Institute as a fellow, so it wasn't a difficult thing for me to do. And I attended about half of it. And then I probably will attend the Harvard trial in the fall if I can. It'll be very hard to get a seat, but I'll try. (laughs) What were you, what were you, so we had uh, Lee Bollinger, the the president of Columbia University here talking about affirmative action over the course of two episodes. Mm -hmm. We were talking about that case. What what struck you with the trial? I think what struck me with the trial is the limitations of a binary understanding of law. Because you have the plaintiff and you have the defendant. And the plaintiff is a group that's led by Edward Bloom, who I do not believe sincerely cares about the Asian American community. And he believes that affirmative action is hurting Asian Americans, and that's his claim. There were no visible Asian American plaintiffs, so we don't even know who's making this claim. And then you have the defendant, Harvard University, which is one of the most powerful institutions, nonprofit companies on the planet, saying that their practices of choosing candidates is unimpeachable. And I guess I found that to be difficult to accept because I thought there were aspects of the case when I heard the testimonies of the witnesses to be deeply unconvincing. And if that case was televised, you would say, you know what, I think to give... Like, for example, in order to pick a candidate, there are several different characteristics that people focus on. And one of them is personality scores. And Asian American candidates were routinely given very, very low personality scores. And the words used to describe these candidates were deeply racist. So in that situation, I think that's really wrong. And yet, I believe very, very strongly that affirmative action is a good thing for Asian Americans, especially because attend is so huge. And the other thing that I'm going to say, and I hope it doesn't get me in trouble, and if it does, so be it, is that if we want to have racial balancing because we believe that diversity is benefited from having many different people in the room, then why don't we admit that that's what's happening? And when when we don't admit that it's happening is because facially in America, quotas and racial balancing are illegal things. In other countries, quotas are not illegal. And quotas have been seen to demonstrate the eventual equalizing of historically wrong practices. So like say in Taiwan, you had to have a quota of certain kinds of people in Taiwan in order to have a more fair judiciary system. And... But in America, quotas are considered facially wrong, so we don't have them. But the numbers are very unpersuasive to me. And yet, I think there has to be a third way of having affirmative action exist and to have a greater 
representation of all different kinds of points of view. And right now, I think that there's too much eye rolling. I would hate to see affirmative action go. I would. I think that it would be a real travesty. Who's eye rolling? I think there's a lot of eye rolling in the Asian American community about the fairness of this case. Do you have a prediction? Oh, I think Harvard will lose. I do. And it's to their own fault because they made it too stark. Rather than admitting that some of these things are unfair, they just said, no, we're right. And they dug their heels in. And I think they're going to unfortunately lose, not also because the court has become deeply, deeply political. And it's not supposed to be. I mean, I always thought that of Montague's, Montesquieu's idea of separation of powers, I've always felt this kind of romantic attachment to the judiciary and especially the Supreme Court. I mean, you've been to a Supreme Court cases, right? Yep. And aren't they amazing? Like when you see some- Well, it's amazing to be in that courtroom and the majesty of it. Yeah. And, and also- the best lawyers in the world argue their cases, and it's very— yeah, Not always. Not always, but yes. <laughs> okay. Among generally, the best— <laughs> Generally speaking, yes. Yes. Among the best litigators in the world like speak in that forum, and I've heard the arguments, and you're always like, wow, this is a great country because these judges care about justice. And I think, obviously, there's so many miscarriages of justice in this country historically and today— but I have to say right now, the composition of the court, there's just far too much evidence of inequity, and I'm troubled by what will happen. So just now we were talking about predicting an outcome mm. in a particular legal case. Mm -hmm. And you've talked about outcomes otherwise, but not in this context, I don't think. But it's fascinating to me. You said uh, recently, not that long ago, a couple of years ago, quote, I am not impressed by people who will do whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. I disagree strongly with outcome-oriented behavior. Mm -hmm. The ends do not always justify the means. Perspective and process matter, end quote. What were you talking about? I'm talking about every aspect of ambition. I study human ambition. That is part of my job as a novelist. Ambition in and of itself is not bad, or is Oh, it? no, ambition is a beautiful thing. Yes. Like when I meet a young person and they don't have wishes to accomplish things, that makes me feel deeply troubled. Like I think, what did we do wrong? that you don't have really gorgeous dreams to pursue. But however, I think ambition without ethics is nothing short of craven. And how much do you see that? I see it every day. In your students or among older people or both? Both. But especially, I think that the elder generation, including my own, like I think Gen X and boomers and older millennials, we are becoming a world where we think that the ends do justify the means because we see so much evidence of success being rewarded even though we know that they have been deeply immoral in so many aspects of their lives. I don't mean just their personal life because I, you know, I can easily separate a person's personal life from his, her, or their professional success. But even professionally, we find out terrible ways that people have done, um, terrible things people have done in order to get what they want. And it's very disillusioning. It's hard to recover from being morally disillusioned. And I have to bring that up because perhaps that is a job of a, of a writer to say, there's a really strong consequence 
to moral disillusionment. It breeds cynicism and apathy and a lack of civic engagement. We haven't talked enough about writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is, and that's, that's what you do. So in the remaining minutes, let's just talk about some of that, because I think it's, it's always fascinating to hear how authors approach their craft. Mm-hmm. Are you one of these people who love writing or only love having written? Oh, I love writing. And as a matter of fact, I think in a way you and I have been talking about the writing the whole time because I write social novels. I write novels about ideas and about what's going on in the world and what has happened in the world. So I have to be in the world. There's a part of me that wants to retreat, but I can't write with authority about these things unless I am involved and I really observe. So part that was the reason why I go to trials and attend them because I want to understand how people behave. So when you set about researching a novel mm-hmm. and it takes you a number of years, which is why, <laughs> no, which is, I mean, it's the funny thing. I, I was thinking when I was reading about your style of research and, and the in-depth nature of it, you know, I had, uh, Robert Caro on the show mm-hmm. some years ago, obviously not a fiction writer, but a great storyteller. And time after time, he underestimated the amount of you know, energy and effort he needed and labor he needed to understand something. And the research would stretch sometimes from what he predicted would be a month or two to a year or more. Do you find that your research takes as long as you expect it to take or it keeps just taking longer like it does in Caro's case? Well, I love Robert Caro's work and... I really believe him when he says, turn every page. I'm like that. And when I was an attorney, I did due diligence for corporate M&As. And very often they would send me to some basement and I'd have to review, oh, let's say 20, 30 bankers boxes worth of documents. And I would turn the page. I would turn every page. And I was astonished at how much I would find. So to answer your question, my research always takes longer But I've never actually regretted ever having had that extra interview or going to the extra event or really listening to people when I think about things. Like if I, so for example, in my next novel, I'm going to have a parent who's a judge. So I attended several trials and then this week I'll be talking to five different federal judges. So will that take time? Yes. And how much of it will affect the book, maybe about two pages. I think maybe two pages of probably a 500-page novel. Why is that important? Because it takes exactly one sentence to break the dream of a reader that you that she or he or they are experiencing when they're in a story. And when you get that wrong, when you have that false note, you have broken the dream. So for me, I really need you to stay with me for almost 20 hours. And also when that time is interrupted... I need you to say, I want to go back to that dream. I want to go back to this dream that Minjin created. And that requires enormous energy on my part to make you want to come back. If one is committed to doing the research and has an open mind and an open heart and does the research, does everyone have standing to write about anything and any kind of person? Yes, I do. I believe that you could write about anything and you do not have to be within the body of that person's experience. Absolutely. I mean, I wrote a historical novel about something that happened to people that were not me. I mean, I'm not a Korean Japanese person. And perhaps that required me to do far more work and research to make sure that I get it correct. But 
I don't think so. No. And if I wanted to write about, let's say, I mean, if I felt really called to write about a former prosecutor who is half Sikh and half Hindu, and if I approached it with as much research as possible and also with the right attitude, I could write it. Would it be good? I don't know, but I think I can do it. I bet it'd be pretty good. <laughs> and, then what, and what a fascinating subject. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I, I, would, I would stick to what you're working on right now. What you're working on right now. Talk about um, religion for you. And you say it's unusual in your circles to be a person who goes to church every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Why is that unusual? Because I've seen the polls. And over time, the level of church attendance has gone down in this country. Why do you think that is? And do you think it matters? And and what does church mean to you? Well, in the same way, I think that Congress and the judiciary has been held hostage by a vocal minority. I believe that Christianity in America has been held hostage, is being held hostage by a vocal minority. The average person who identifies herself or himself or themselves as Christians do not espouse the views of the vocal minority of those who are Christian. I am somebody who grew up in the church. My grandfather was a Presbyterian minister as well as a headmaster of an orphanage. And I grew up feeling that Christianity was a political identity as well as a religious identity. And probably the reason why I have so much compassion or feeling towards civic engagement even though politics is something that many people in our communities really look down upon, is because of my Christian identity. In the arts community, however, I think the vocal minority tends to silence those who are mainstream people who believe in God. Well, I don't even have a follow-up to that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've gone an hour. So I'm just going to, is there anything else you'd like me to ask you? Is there something you didn't get off your chest? Well, no, I guess one of the things I keep thinking about, I wonder what you think about this is what it means to be a former lawyer, because you and I are both former lawyers. So I'd love to ask you how much trace, like how does the identity of being a former lawyer have a kind of seeping into the other aspects of your identity? All-consuming for me. Right? I mean, I, I, gave, I gave the commencement address at Brooklyn Law School recently, and I, I sounded a theme that I have in the past. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody looks at me funny, and I say, look, the, the law is the most mobile field that, that exists. If you don't like corporate, you can go to litigation. If you don't like being in-house, you can go to a firm. You can do vice versa. There's so many things you can do. And then I say, and if you don't like being a lawyer, you don't have to be a lawyer. And I'm like, you know, parents are going to start throwing things at me. We spent $100,000 on this degree. <laughs> What you're talking about, don't be a lawyer. And I give the example of my brother, became a successful entrepreneur. There are people, including executives and editorial folks at Vox Media, who used to be lawyers and, and you know, high-functioning <laughs> lawyers. Uh, my brother will tell you that he's glad he went to law school and not business school because it, it informs a certain rigor of approach to everything he does and everything I do. You know, I, I don't have any, I don't have any uh, schooling in how to do an interview with a with an author or a politician, you know, my, my interviewing skills, to the extent I have any, came from doing thousands and thousands of Q and A's with witnesses, yeah, uh, informally, mm-hmm. 
uh, with agents and just, you know, being inquisitive, but also being very, very careful. I mean, I, I think my, my friends sometimes make fun of me, especially when I was a U.S. attorney, that that's something that's very lacking. We talk about the things that are lacking in, in, in folks, mm -hmm. in, in professions is, is rigor. Yeah. I don't see rigor in the arguments being made by politicians. I don't see rigor in the arguments being made by, you know, people from the pulpit, by people who comment on television. Mm -hmm. And part of my DNA, and particularly being a lawyer who had responsibility over people's lives and livelihoods as a prosecutor, you have to get it right. Always get it right. And particularly when you're appearing in court and there's, you know, someone in a robe who can yell at you or throw out your case or hold you in contempt if you lie or dissemble, you know, that has an effect on on how you conduct yourself, I think, how you conduct yourself and talk about things and analyze things uh, and defend things and rebut things in everything you do. So I, I think it's, it's, it's a huge influence on everything I do. How about you? I feel so exactly the same way. And I'll just get a bit more emotional, though, because I'm not a former prosecutor. I think... I still love this idea of protecting the Constitution. I still love this idea of justice and mercy and righteousness. Like, I love it. And I think that when I stop loving it, I probably will retreat. Well, I love it too. You know, one of the reasons we do this podcast is because we care about those things. Mm -hmm. and you're not the only person who cares about the Constitution and the rule of law. We have, we have so many thoughtful people who did not go to law school who want to understand not only how the Constitution works and how it's supposed to work and how accountability is supposed to be gotten and what the process of justice is supposed to look like and supposed to feel like, uh, regardless of outcome. And I think, you know, even though I'm not a practicing lawyer at this moment, and I, you know, I may be in the future, that we provide people with, you know, some, some information and an education about what it means to be a citizen and what it means for the laws to work properly. And I think, I think that's why it's a popular show because people are hungry for that like you are. Well, I'm a listener and I think that I'm a very thoughtful listener. <laughs> um, you have research to do, so I'm going to let you go. Okay. Minjin Lee, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much, Preet. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Min Jin Lee. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.